0: A good friend of mine sent this to me by email this week, and and I won't read all of it because it's fairly lengthy, but I do think it's worth reading the numbers to you. I'm about to read a casualty list from the wars that we have fought. 4,435 Americans died fighting King George in the Revolutionary War. 2,260 died fighting the, the, the British in the War of 1812. 13,283 Americans died in the Mexican War. 558,052 Americans died on both sides in the Civil War. 2,246 Americans died in the Spanish-American War. 116,708 Americans died fighting German aggression in World War I. 407,316 Americans died defeating fascism in Europe. During World War II, I will remember the 33,500. I'm sorry, 33,651 Americans who died in North Korea. 58,168 Americans died in Vietnam. 293 Americans died during the Gulf War. 3,000 plus Americans have died liberating Iraq. And then it goes on to say that the it, it quotes from this, the words carved in stone at the Korean War Memorial, the National Mall in Washington, D.C., freedom isn't free. So, men and women, we thank you for the service that you've given to our country, and we remember those who have fallen in defense of this great country that we are so privileged to live in. We started a series last week called... Uh, uh, let me see if I can get this right. Outrageous Contagious Joy. And I thought... That it was just going to be a cute little series, right? I thought it was just going to be this, we'll preach four sermons and it won't be, you know, just be a nice little series on joy and kind of like a surgical strike. We'll get in and out and we'll move on to something else. Wrong. I cannot tell you how many pieces of feedback I've gotten, either by telephone calls or visits to my office or emails. Um, As late as Friday and Saturday, I had people talking to me about what was said on last Sunday, this idea of joy. and we, we, We're going to recap some of it today, but I got to be honest with you. I, I did not expect that, and uh, so I'm thinking that we may have hit a good nerve, and, and so I'm looking forward to what today uh, brings us as well. I wonder if, if I were to take a picture of you. I almost did this. I almost brought a digital camera in here. Actually, I meant to, and I forgot. I was going <laughs> to... Welcome to my world. I... I was going to take a digital picture of someone, come down on the front row and take a picture of someone. Aren't you glad I didn't do that, front row people? And then I was going to show you the picture. Because, you know, with a digital camera, they'll, you, you can instantly see. That's the beauty of those digital cameras. You can instantly see whether or not it's a good picture, and if you don't like it, you can delete it. Well, what determines whether or not you're going to delete the picture? I'll tell you what determines whether or not you delete the picture. What determines whether or not you delete the picture is when you look at you if you don't look good, you're ready to delete the picture. Am I right? Isn't that true? The first person, we determine the value of a picture based on not anybody else, but how do I look in that picture? How does that picture reflect me? Because, and you know, the really bad thing is that when you, you see all these pictures and you go, ooh, ooh. I mean, it's one after the other. Ooh, I don't like that. I mean, you know, after a while, it's probably not the photographer and it's probably not the camera. You know, that might be, that just might be the way you really look, so you might need to make friends with that, and ooh, might need to change to ah, you know? You, you, need, to, you need to think about it. You ever get those Christmas pictures where they take pictures of the whole family and they send those? Do you, you ever notice who looks the best in those pictures? Who looks the best in those pictures? Mom looks the best in those pictures because she's making the decision about wh- who, which one gets mailed. Dad can have his eyes closed and his, you know, and his hat on backward and all kinds of stuff, doesn't matter, but mom's got to look good in that picture, and she always does. You know, I'm the same way. When I look at a picture, the first place I look is at myself. That's just natural for us to want to do that. We started last week by singing a song. We won't do that again this week, but you remember the song, don't you? Happy and you know it. Isn't it amazing how you grow up and you, you, that song, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's just a song, but really it, it, it does, I don't know that, that us singing the song really drives home that mentality in our minds, but we grow up with that mentality. If you're happy and you know it, that life is really all about getting happy. It's about uh, everything happening for me, and we talked about that it comes from Latin, the word hap uh, is about circumstances. What happens to you makes you happy. Many people have a God just wants me to be happy mentality. They go through their whole life and and they're disappointed because they've really bought into the idea that, well, God just wants me to be happy. And the thing is, you, you can do that and you can try to do life that way, and you might even come to Jesus and still try and cling to that God wants me to be happy mentality. And you live life the way you want to and then when somebody confronts you about something you know you start to play the God card and you say well now hold on just a minute because God really just wants me to be happy if God wants me to be happy and I'm going to live my life that way I might do some things in my life that, that would make other people very unhappy so what do you say to them you know can you can you look at someone when you've done something that adversely affects someone else and and say, "Well, God wants me to be happy they're not happy they can't you know they they would say, well then what does that make what does that mean about God for me i mean if if God wants you to be happy and you doing what you do, I heard the story of a guy that that um decided he was quite wealthy he'd made quite a name for himself had built a big business drove a six-figure uh car worth six figures you know an italian sports car and he 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 took his pastor out to lunch one day and said i'm leaving my wife i'm leaving my kids i've met someone else and i'm god wants me to be happy well, what is what is the wife and kids, what's their response? Does that mean God doesn't want us to be happy? So you have to be careful with the whole uh, God wants me to be happy thing. We said last week that that a lot of people, when it comes to spiritual life in general, tend to live in the shallow end. You know, We, we tend to stay down in the shallow end with our floaties on, and we look longingly at the deep end at some people who seem to be in really deep water, having the time of their life in life and we long for that and we want that and we think, well, you know, how can I get that? You know when you were a kid and you, you, you sat and played on the steps maybe or you, you looked at the bigger kids in the deep end of the pool and you wanted to be like the big kids? I remember, you know, watching big kids jump off the high dive thinking how crazy do you have to be to jump off that thing. And then as I got older and a little bigger, and I started to think about the possibility of maybe me going and climbing that great big huge ladder and taking three seconds to leave the, the platform and hit the water. You know, it just seemed like it was just huge. And then finally one day, I got up enough courage to get out of the shallow end and walk down there where the big kids hung out and wait my turn at the ladder and climb up that ladder and get on that high dive. And everybody was looking at me and I summoned the courage to finally jump, <laughs> toes curled over the edge, you know, and you just look around and you, this, the wind blows ha- harder up there, you know. I mean, everything's intensified. And But I jumped off and I remember when I came up out of the water, I remember, you know, this this mentality, this idea of, oh, I'm not ever going to the shallow end again. I mean, this is where it's at. This is Now I'm cool. Now I I could jump off the high dive. I mean, that's what we all want. We want to be in the deep end. And yet, we'll stay in the shallow end a lot longer than we should with our floaties on. Some of you probably have kids right now that probably need to learn how to swim, but they're afraid. And at some point, pretty soon, you're going to start to push them a little bit. To Come on, we've got to teach you how to swim. You need to learn how to swim. To swim and you'll, you'll push them that way and and, and uh, the whole idea is get the floaties off so that they can go enjoy the deep end of the pool and so that you can really breathe a little easier too truth be told God wants us to live in the deep stuff and he knows we're going to be happy and he knows that there are going to be moments of happiness moments of happiness Joy something deeper than happiness though and it's something that's really hard to define. We talked about last week that joy is life to the excess, that it is about tranquility of the soul. And I can talk like that and say things like that, but that, that really does not do it for you. I mean, that doesn't really complete a picture of what joy is for you. I think sometimes it's easier to talk about what joy isn't. You know, you, when, you're, when you are in joy, it's really hard to explain to somebody what that is like. You can be going through a very difficult time and still be in joy, and someone was, you know, it's the kind of the, the, the idea of I've seen people go through horrendous things in hospitals. And you get all different kinds of mentalities in a hospital. I, I've told you before about the family that I saw lose two little male children, babies. Uh, one was five months, one was 15 months to the same rare blood gas disease. I mean, it, it devastated their family. But every time we went to the hospital, we would pray with them and there was this light in them was joy and I can't define it for you and I I, you know but I can I can show it to you when I see it and I can tell you when I'm in it I can I can tell you when joy is welled up in me and you can do that as well you know you're in it you just have a hard time explaining it when you're in the flow The, the predominant disposition for the Christian God would say that he wants us to have the predominant disposition of joy Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is relational. And God could have made anything the predominant disposition for the Christian. I mean, it could have been, any, it could have been boredom. It, it could have been depression or solemnness or predictability. It could have been all kinds of stuff. But that's not what God just determined would be the thing, the overriding disposition for the Christian. We choose careers and spouses and friends, churches based on the joy quotient but most of the time we're really just messing around with happiness and we're not really pressing to joy Paul wrote a book called Philippians and it's all about outrageous contagious joy 14 times in the book of Philippians he references this word we're going to look at joy today and Paul talks about joy like I said it's easier sometimes it's easier to talk about what joy isn't than it is to talk about what joy is Uh, Paul wrote this letter he was chained To a member of the Praetorian Guard, uh, the the Roman Praetorian Guard. He was he was was under arrest. Church history tells us they were the best, most well trained soldiers of their day. They were elite men. Paul thought he would go to Rome as a preacher or a pastor. (laughs) He ended up going as a prisoner. It's kind of odd. Have you ever done something or ended up doing something? Maybe you did that with your life. You ended up doing something with your life you never really thought that you would do. Or you, you, you're doing something in life that you never really thought you would do. I mean, I, I, there's people that are in this room right now that I could call out and I could say, you know, they're doing something. And I'm sure 10 years ago they did not think they would be doing, doing stuff for God that they 10 years ago never dreamed because God never crossed their mind 10 years ago. Now every day they wake up and one of the first thoughts they have is, you know doing this thing that i do for god the bible says god uses all things sometimes even bad things negative things we we you know we are so quick to label something bad we're quick to label death bad here's what i've come to understand god has not one ounce of trouble with my death at all if he gets glory I mean, that's an easy trade for God to make. Brett Wilson dies, I get glory. God says, I'll take that, I'll take that. We would, we would think about death, and we would say, well, death's bad. It's always bad. God would say, no, not if it's in exchange for my glory. See, we don't often think that way. The Bible says God uses all things, good things, bad things. Remember, we, we all have problems <laughs> Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. When we do what God wants us to do, we are gonna have joy. So God really isn't as much concerned about us being happy. I know that's a big deal to us. We pursue our happiness all the time. We've gotta get to the place where we understand God's mindset on this thing and God's mindset is your happiness Not nearly as important to me as joy. We get all concerned about being happy. God gets all concerned about obedience. And He says, When you are obedient to me, you will have joy. You can take that to the bank. When you're obedient to God, you are going to experience joy. There's no question about that. Paul was obedient. And yet he found himself in chains, and he writes this letter, and 14 times in this little letter, he references this word, joy. That is not, you know, the the world would hear that and say, that's not normal. How does a guy get arrested, get chained up like that? His life's in danger, he could lose it at any time, and yet he writes about joy. He wrote this letter to a church In Philippi, and it was established during Paul's second missionary journey. He started this church with some friends, and he wanted to talk to the people, but he was in prison. So, the church at Philippi had some leaders, uh, one of them named Epaphroditus. Now, I don't know what your name is, your middle name, especially. Don't know what it is, but I'm pretty sure it's not Epaphroditus, so you got that going for you this morning, okay? It's one reason for you to be joyful. My name is not Epaphroditus. But, Epaphroditus found the Apostle Paul in Rome, gave him some money and gave him some other things as well, told him what was going on in the church, and Paul, in response to that generosity, wrote a thank you letter to the church at Philippi. The Philippian letter, Philippians, is really a thank you letter to the church there while he was in prison. And the whole letter is about being single-minded and having one purpose. Paul said, you want joy? Submit your life to Christ. That's where joy is going to be found When you submit your life to Christ, joy will be found. I'm just telling you right now that if you have made your life about the pursuit of happiness and you cannot find it and you've done everything, you've taken every pill, swallowed every drop, you've bought every car and bought every house and bought every piece of clothing you can think of, every, you know, dripping with jewelry and everything else, and you look at all that stuff and you say, it's not working. Then I'm telling you, the problem is you're going about it all the wrong way. That when you submit your life to Christ, you will find something way deeper than happiness. You will find joy, and you will stop pursuing those things. It's about us getting under the things that God has put over us so that we can get over those things that God has put under us. Some of our lives are spent not really realizing that God wants some things under us. And we miss joy and we miss the depth and we miss the richness that that this life of joy can really bring. We know Paul wrote this letter because it's written in the first person. Polycarp and Clement and Eusebius have all testified that that this is a letter written by Paul. and And this is a prison epistle and there are several prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon are all uh, epistles written by Paul in prison, but but in Philippians he talks about outrageous, contagious joy. You have to understand there's a battle that goes on in your mind and in your heart every day and in my heart every day. It's a battle that we fight to attain joy, but there the enemy, there's you know, there's a pushback on this. There's a, there's a negative flow that comes back that says, no, you're not supposed to have joy. We're not going to let you have joy. And uh, Paul doesn't call them this, but we're going to call them this this morning. We would call those joy jammers, things that would get in the way, obstacles to joy. The message title this morning is is uh, Obstacles to Joy. We're just going to identify a couple of those in the writings of Paul this morning, um, We deal with these every day. You do, I do. I mean, in our pursuit to to go deeper, these are the things that get in the way of us going deeper. I said earlier, trying to define joy or explain it can be difficult. I think a lot of times it's easier to talk about what it's not. That's kind of how we're going to approach it this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 Do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's your first joy jammer. Selfish ambition. I heard, in preparation for this message, I heard a preacher tell the story about taking his twin three-year-old boys fishing in Texas for perch, and he had some older kids, too, and I'm sure that he, this was said to the older kids, but, but he's, you know, they are wanting to keep the fish. Have you ever had kids, and, you know, they want to keep the fish, no matter how big or little they are, they want to keep the fish and he had to look at him and say no throw the fish back because they're not very big and we need to throw them back and they'll grow bigger and we'll catch them next year but don't keep the fish and so he went on about his thing he said they fished for about an hour they got ready to pack everything up they grabbed the rods and reels closed up the tackle boxes they threw them in the truck they went home this is in texas now middle of summer you see where i'm going don't you triple digit heat He throws the rod and reels, the tackle boxes, in the garage attached to the house. Two or three days later, there's a smell in the house, and they can't find it. And they look everywhere. He said they tore up carpet. They did everything to try and find the source of the smell. And he said, something just said, go look in that tackle box. And he said, sure enough, I went out, and I opened up the tackle box, and I lifted up the tray, and one of those boys had put a little fish in there. The source of the smell was the fish. When we are self-fish, we smell really bad to God. Could it be that we have some self-fish people in the room this morning? You see, I don't know because I can't always smell it. I can smell it in me. I don't always smell it in you. But you know what? God smells it. God smells it and he doesn't really have to look all through the house and he doesn't have to wonder where it's coming from. He doesn't get surprised three days later by looking in the garage and saying, oh my. I mean, the minute he smells it, he knows the source of the smell. It's you and me being selfish. I don't know about you, but I struggle with it all the time. I think one of the first words kids learn is mine. You ever heard little kids that can't say hardly anything, but they can pick up the matchbox and say mine. They can take their car away from you if you pick it up off the floor and mine. It's who we are. It's how we grow up. It's, it's, it's natural for us to be that way. And we struggle with it and fight with it. And every time I have a meistic mentality, and believe me, I have it, I smell like a fish. You know what it is? It's the smell of hell. That's what it is. Spiritually speaking, every time we get selfish, it is the smell of hell. The first sin, pride. Selfishness and pride make us smell. You, you can't say the word pride without saying I. And the antidote to this is to be generous. It isn't to be selfish, but to give. We are to give of ourselves. We aren't to be selfish. In our relationships, we're to give. Our relationships will be strong. But if we get selfish in relationships, our relationships are going to suffer. And here's the paradox of Christianity. The paradox is that the more I give away of myself and of my resources, the happier I really am going to be. We don't believe that, but that really is the truth the more I give the more I get and I get to give I don't, I don't get to get I get it God gives it to me so that I can give it back and when I keep that flow going I, I pretty much get what I need but the moment I get selfish things kind of dry up things go south relationships sour you know problems occur When I give, I get my needs met. I don't hear this very often, but every now and then I'll hear somebody say, "You know, I, I tried going to Cross Lane. I heard it was a friendly church, and but I went there, and nobody talked to me. I heard it was a friendly place, and it, you know everybody would be happy that I was there, but nobody talked to me. You know what? I want to say back to that. Did you talk to anybody?" Did you say hi to anybody did you put your hand out and say hello and hi my name is see here's something that i've learned if i want people to talk to me i need to be willing to talk to people if i want people to ask how i'm doing might be a good idea for me to start off by saying hey how are you doing or if you're from brooklyn it's how you doing. I want to share a little bit of my life, I need to be willing to let somebody else share a little bit of their life. If I want questions asked about me, I should ask questions of other people. So when I give myself away, I end up receiving the deep needs of my life. That's what, that's what spiritual maturity really is all about it's about getting it's about uh, denying this whole idea of greed and give me give me give me and and you know I want this and I want that and mine that's you know we we say about our kids that they're beginning to mature when they don't say mine all the time right and yet spiritually speaking we go around all the time saying mine mine and God's saying you know when you stop doing that I'll be able to call you spiritually mature but until that time You're still a baby. It's time to grow up. You can't go around all the time saying, mine. It's kind of like we we had some baby birds last spring. We had a robin build a nest right in our uh, kitchen window. And we were able to watch her come and go. and, And man, the minute they even got, those little baby birds got any inkling of an idea that mom was around with a worm in her mouth. I mean, the mouths opened up. You could just see them. You know, they'd try and push themselves to be the tallest and the loudest, and it was amazing the noise that they made. You know what? We sound like that many, many times. Selfishness. Vain conceit. Selfish ambition. Joy jammer. James 3.16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. You know, I talked about taking that picture and how, you know, you would look at the picture of you first. It's just so natural for us to do that. That's really who we are. It's a part of our fallenness. It's a part of our selfishness. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere, get, get this, the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So it's time for us to wake up and smell the fish. It's time for us to find it in ourselves. We need to have the sweet aroma before the Lord. Verse 15, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. I saw a shirt, I've heard this illustration many, many times in different ways. In fact, I had somebody walk out of church Sunday and say something very similar to me uh, uh, as to what I'm about to say to you, but I saw this on a shirt word was joy written in an acrostic and it said Jesus others you it's a really pretty good way to approach joy if you want joy that's how you're going to get it Jesus others you you want to swim in the deep end it's simple Jesus others insert your name so as you think about your spiritual life and you think of your relationships and your resources and your prayer life and your career, what does God smell? Does he smell selfishness or does he smell a sweet aroma that you put off as you basically go through your life looking to give, looking to, to bless somebody else in some way, looking, to, looking out for somebody else? Or are you others... Are you other-centered or are you me-centered? Because if you're me-centered, that's a joy jammer. Paul talks about another one in, in verse fourteen of chapter two. Let's use this word. Let's use the word bitterness. Bitterness. What is bitterness? It's a kind of anger, and there really are two kinds of anger. There's a there's a hot anger that we you know we would call temper. Someone pulls out in front of you and challenges your every ounce of spirituality you have. My preacher used to say, if you want to test your spirituality, get on the interstate and drive through Cincinnati. You'll find out if you're spiritual or not. There's hot anger. and We're all pretty familiar with hot anger, and we've all probably shown our hot anger from time to time. Then there's a cold anger. Resentment turned inward. I'm going to ice you out. And this really, I think, is the one that causes the most trouble for people Bitterness. That guy ripped me off. That deal went south. My coach did this to me. My spouse said that to me. In this week's Sports Illustrated, this past week, there's an article about a guy, I don't know if you remember, a guy named Cecil Fielder used to play for the Detroit Tigers, used to hit moonshot home runs. I mean, this guy, big old dude, he used to just crush the ball. He's got a son now that has grown up and is as big as he was, and he plays for the Milwaukee Brewers, and he's a big home run hitter and a great hitter, is going to be a really good ball player. But the article was all about the fact that three years ago, they got into an argument and they haven't spoken since. Dad has to pay for a ticket to go watch his son play ball. Because there was a, a divorce and things got said and this one said this and this one said that and we, selfishness happened and, and, you know, I'm going to feel better if I can get this off my chest and I'm going to say it and things get said and then silence. We look at our spouse and our manager, anybody we get mad at and we just freeze them out bitterness. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2 in Philippians. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Show me somebody that complains and argues and I'll show you somebody with bitterness issues. Show me somebody that that argues and complains all the time and I'll show you someone who has resentment turned inward. They're bitter. Frozen resentment. Show me a, a, a spouse or a teacher or a pastor anybody, and I can show you somebody who will struggle from time to time with bitterness. Marriages really have to be aware of this because bitterness, this resentment turned inward, can just destroy a marriage. Marriage is sometimes not the easiest thing. Married people, raise your hand if you're married. Let's represent this morning. Okay, you understand what I say? Marriage can bring out the best in us, right? Right? can also bring out the worst. I have, some of my greatest moments have been as a married man. Some of my stinkiest moments have been as a married man. And, you know, single people hear married people talk and they say, well, I'm not going to be like that. My marriage isn't going to be like that. Pretty much, I just think God keeps single people stupid about marriage <laughs> until they actually get married. And then you wake up one day and you smell the fish. You smell that selfishness. My pride, my bitterness are very apparent to me and if I don't see them, my wife is more than happy to point those out for me. We spend so much energy and so much time trying to be cold and fostering resentment instead of of taking the energy that we use to keep that going to turn it around for reconciliation, love, forgiveness, warmth, Hebrews 12, 15. Listen to this. This comes out of the Living Bible. This is really a neat translation. Watch out. The original language meant watch out. That no bitterness takes root among you, for as it springs up, it causes what? You see what it says? It causes what? Deep trouble. Hurting many in their spiritual lives. It's another joy jammer. False evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. Do the acrostic. False evidence appearing real. Fear. We get afraid. I deal with fear, and so do you. I deal with bitterness, so do you. I deal with selfishness, so do you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope. Keep in mind, he's in chains. I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is this really cool thing on the internet. It's called Google Earth. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I talk about Google Earth? You can go to Google Earth and bring this thing up and you see the the globe, you see Earth, and then up in the corner, there's a place where you can type a, a, an address. And when you type in your address, the earth starts to rotate to center on where you put the address. So like if you, we put 2204 Lafayette Avenue, it's going to turn to Terre Haute, and it starts to zoom in, and the earth gets really big. And the next thing you know, we're zoomed in, and we are right on top of the church. You can see a, a satellite picture of the church building and the property and the, the circle drive. You can actually see which cars. I think right now on Google Earth, my car is in the parking lot of the church. And I, you know, I could I could take my kids to where I grew up in Carrollton, Kentucky, on Winslow Street. And I I don't even really have to have the, the, the address. I could eventually find the street for you. I can get that close. It was right by General Butler State Park. I grew up right behind the park. And And right on Winslow Street, I could call my kids over and say, right there's where I grew up. I remember going down this street and playing ball with Jeff Fultz. We used to play basketball, his dad was a high school basketball coach. Life was beautiful. We had BB guns, (laughs) we used to race cars. And I can get so focused in on Winslow Street in Carrollton, Kentucky, that I can forget about the state of Kentucky. I can forget about the United States of America. I I can forget the bigger picture. See, when we lose sight of the big picture, and it all becomes about us and what we were about, dangerous, dangerous territory. When When we lose sight of the big picture, we can get fearful. we start talking about what if this happens? You know, what if that happens? I talked to somebody this week and they said, man, I'm a worrier. I said, you realize half of what you're worrying about you can't do anything about. The other half's never going to happen. What are you worried about? God wants us to kind of click out. He wants us to go back out to the big globe picture and see it that way. When you see it that way, you don't get nearly as worked up. You know, when you see the big picture, a 64 on a history test, is that really a big deal? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, if I mess up in my sermon, is it really a big deal in the grand scheme of things? In the grand scheme of things, if you lose the account... In the grand scheme, of, I realize your household and your money situation, that's something, but, but in the grand scheme of what God is up to in the earth, is it really worth the fear that we go through? So often we allow fear to tyrannize things and causes us to miss the process of joy. The prophet Jeremiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy strengthens us and enables us to do phenomenal things. But if you're always weirded out by fear, it can tyrannize you, and, and it'll keep you from really revealing your true self. You say, Brett, I, you know I've got fear. Well, guess what? I do too. So often you just you just have to do it afraid. You, whatever it is that you, you're doing, you just have to do it afraid. This whole pastor gig, I got to tell you, when I started preaching. I was freaked out because I didn't know what I was doing and I've been doing it seven years and it hadn't gotten a whole lot better. I still don't know what I'm doing. I wake up every day in new territory. I don't know what I'm doing. I I, I gotta tell you, there are days that I'm scared to death. We're, We're talking to consultants. We're talking about buildings. We're talking about, you know, where we're going in 10 years and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, i got two options. I can crawl into a hole and hope it goes away, or I can do it afraid. And when we do it afraid, joy will get all over us, and we will discover that in the grand scheme of things, fear is nothing. Joy will empower us. It's all about problems in life. The problem with life is the problems. We've all got them. You've got them. I've got them. We we all have problems. They're not going away. Paul was chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard. They were changed out every six hours, history tells us. So basically, Paul pretty much got to witness to every guard that he got chained to. Paul got to meet people because of his chains. that he would never, ever have gotten to meet any other way. God used Paul's chains to change lives. Did you hear that? He used Paul's chains to change lives. You come to me and you say, Brett, I got these two preschoolers at home and I just feel chained to them. You are chained to change lives. Lives, Brett, I've got a job. You don't understand how bad I hate this job. It's a horrible job. It's, I feel like I'm a slave. I feel like a prisoner to it. You are chained to change lives. And you can look at it as slavery and make yourself miserable because your circumstances are. You can't get out of it. Or you can begin to look at it with joy and say, I am chained to change lives. And I will give and I won't use all my emotional capital trying to build something up to where I'm making everybody else around me miserable. I will give, and I will be obedient, and I will submit to Christ. And somewhere in that process, you will find joy. And I'm just telling you, uh, it's, it's going to get better. I, my pastor growing up, change your attitude, change your day. I can't tell you what great advice that is. This is what it means to have outrageous, contagious joy. It means to walk in obedience with God. And when we do that, let's sing a little bit more. You want to? Join in when you identify the song, because I don't like singing solos. And every time I do this, they tape these, and they threaten to play them back for everybody. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Down in my heart, I've got the joy, 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 joy Down in my heart, down in my heart to stay I love it, we got the wear going on, that's great (laughs) Selfishness, bitterness, pride Joy jammers Can't be about those Obedience Swimming in the deep end Going off the high dive, getting rid of the floaties. That's what we got to be about. Let's pray together. Father, Jesus is the ultimate freedom fighter when it comes to joy. He went to unbelievable expense to provide for us a life that is joy filled. By virtue of his death and our faith in it, we can have the Spirit of God alive in our hearts. By virtue of that spirit, we are overcomers. When we are overcomers, when we face down fear and bitterness and selfish ambition, we get to the deep end of the pool. God, I pray that you are working in our hearts and in our lives to teach us the difference between the shallow end and the deep end and how to get there. Lord, teach us how to swim so that we can in turn glorify you because that's, that's what this is all about God is to be able to give you glory and if my life is, is required for you to get that glory then I pray that it would be the will of everybody in this room to say then take my life take it because I want you praised and I want your name lifted up and I would joyfully lay my life down to see God get glory Help us to do that every day, Father. Help us to spiritually die to ourselves, to lay our lives down so that we can say we are people in the deep end of the pool. Live in life for Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.